All right. Hello, I'm Cliff Smith, the director of the Washington, um, the Washington Project, director of the Middle East Forum. And today I am hosting Aram Haparian of the Armenian National Committee of America to discuss a very important issue to the region, specifically the recent war in the South Caucasus between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Hello, Aram. How are you doing today? Very well. So glad to be with you. Let's start off to say that the conflict between our Azerbaijan and Armenia is very old and in some senses can be traced back all the way to the Ottoman Empire. Uh, the modern conflict, however, was shaped in large part by the Soviet Union. In the early 1920s, just a few years after the Armenian genocide, which President Biden recently um, recognized officially, um, then Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin transferred an area that was um, overwhelmingly ethnically Ar Armenian in the Nagorno-Karabakh region um, to Azerbaijan. This was done as a way basically of keeping um, Azerbaijan tied to the Soviet Union. Um, Azerbaijan lost control of this region after the fall of the Soviet Union in the first uh, Nagorno-Karabakh War of 1991. But while there has been nonstop tension since, the 2020 conflict was the first wide-scale um, conflict we've seen since then. Sadly, these conflicts have re-erupted this week. Um, timing is funny, if sad. Um, according to available reports, eight soldiers were killed and a dozen more and dozens more were wounded or missing. Um, so there's a lot of details about the different forces at work over history. Um, and I, like many of our viewers, am not a real expert on this. However, our guest is. And so I will start with um, just by asking Aram, from your perspective, why did the 2020 war happen? It's a really, really important question, but I'll, I'll preface my response by first saying thank you, Cliff. You've been uh, a great partner, a, a trusted uh, expert, really great resource for, I think, all of Washington on issues that deal with the Middle East. So thank you for having us. and Thank you to the Middle East Forum for, for organizing this event. Okay, why, why did the war happen? I would say there's like two root causes. And, and the first root cause is um, Stalin and the Soviet Union and their desire as they kind of asserted authority into the, into the caucuses and projected power into what's now Azerbaijan, Armenia, and Georgia, uh, they sought to tie the various republics and oblasts and, and, and regions uh, to Moscow and to make them dependent on Moscow. And they kind of created this kind of interconnecting web of dependencies, uh, for example, by moving the Armenian populated region, historically Armenian populated region of, of Nagorno-Karabakh, which we call Artsakh, uh, into um, an oblast, uh, a region administered by Azerbaijan. They took and did largely the same with Nakhichevan, which is an exclave uh, to the, the southwest of Armenia. And their, their hope was to tie these groups together. And the, the fact of the matter is that Azerbaijan's only claim to Nagorno-Karabakh is that Joseph Stalin stole it from them. It's not a historic claim. Uh, the area is uh, covered in ancient Armenian churches. There's a, a legacy of Armenian um, you know, continuous presence there for thousands of years. So that's that's one piece of it, which was uh, gerrymandering and the, the the effort by Armenians to right a, a historic wrong. So that's one layer of it. And that answers some of the question of why there was a war. The second part of it is pan-Turkism, which is now that um, Azerbaijan is an independent republic, it has allied itself with Turkey uh, with the ambition of connecting the Turkic world, who stands in the way, you know, the small republic of Armenia, the small republic, of Nagorno-Karabakh, and the, the, they have attacked Nagorno-Karabakh, took 70% of that indigenous Christian Armenian homeland, and now have their sights set on Sunik, which is the southern part of Armenia, which would um, 
basically cut off Armenia from, from even more of its neighbors and would connect the Turkic world. And Erdogan has spoken openly about this and, and saying, you know, uh, the Armenians can give it to us or we can take it. And Aliyev, the president, the billionaire president of Azerbaijan has said the same. So I think we have historical injustice uh, perpetrated by the Soviets that now has created uh, fertile ground for pan-Turkic ambitions in the region. And this is not Adama Brian talking. This is uh, Recep Erdogan and Ilham Aliyev. They're very, very upfront about the fact that uh, they want to connect their two countries physically at the expense of Armenia and to kind of like have a, a broad Turkish world. I think just a couple of days ago, Erdogan was visited by one of the, the right-wing parties, the, the more uh, nationalist parties in Turkey, and the, his colleague brought with him a map of, of the future of Turkey. And it was a pretty scary if you happen to be uh, Armenian or Greek or Georgian even. It's, it's a very ambitious, very, I think, reckless approach. So you touched on two things that I was, I was going to ask about. Um, oh, one other thing I should mention, if anybody has a question, well, the audience um, can ask questions in the Q&A box. And uh, first, me and Aram will just talk about later on. Um, you can feel free to ask questions and we'll ask what, which whatever ones we have time for. But um, one of the, the things I was going to say was, um, you know, you've given a very good explanation of the historic and, you know, continuing tensions. But given the, you know, 30 year lull between in, you know, not, there was still conflict, but sort of a big war. Why, why did this specific time happen? Was this also due to Erdogan's ambitions, do you think, or was this something else going on? I think there's a, like a lot of factors and, and it's, it's hard to know for sure, but I would say certainly uh, Erdogan's regional ambitions, his desire to sort of build up his credentials domestically as kind of a, you know, um, a hammer of sorts, uh, also distracting from domestic uh, problems. That's like, that's the, the Erdogan side of it. Looking at the, the Aliyev side, I think he's looking at uh, his legacy and, and he wanted to accomplish something that his father was unable to do. And also, if you look at uh, Azerbaijan's economy, it's number one export by far in the high 90s is petroleum. And that is uh, A, uh, running out, and B, you know, it's not the future. The future is going to be renewables or something else. So I think that they view this as their window. I think they thought they, they see their, their, their power, their wealth, uh, you know, hitting a peak and this is the time to act. Then of course they did it, uh, they did the attack during COVID, uh, much like the Armenian genocide, which was perpetrated during the first world war under the cover of a war. This attack was perpetrated uh, during the COVID crisis. And then finally it was in the very, very last days of the Trump administration. And there was simply no bandwidth in Washington to deal with this issue, uh, given the transition, the controversy and stuff. So they, they you know, uh, it, I'll say this about the Turks and Azadis, they have become expert over the years, over the centuries, of um, how to how to persecute, how to prosecute wars against uh, uh, Christian Armenians. So, on that, um, so I'll, two questions. One, I would say, um, when you're talking about this kind of pan-Turkic, you know, um, Islamist ambition, um, you think that that um, Azerbaijan is, I mean their leaders are okay with Erdogan sort of being the top dog in this new formation that might come forward? Is that, is that correct? I don't think they're perfectly aligned, but if, if, the, if the partnership with Turkey can deliver you know, something for them that they want, which is uh, to, to claim indigenous Armenian land, then they'll certainly go along. More broadly, you know, I think that they have different political cultures. The Azerbaijani political culture is still largely Soviet. Uh, the, the, the leaders of Azerbaijan, many of them, the older ones, studied in Moscow. They have 
bit more of a, a bit more of a secular uh, orientation. Not so secular that they would not um, enlist jihadist mercenaries in their wars against Armenia, but they tend to have a little bit of a different yeah. uh, political that's, culture than Erdogan. That's actually what I was going to ask next. Was that obviously um, one thing that you don't have to read that much about the war to realize is that this current class conflict, um, you know, the gains that Azerbaijan made were made largely because they were supported with not with Turkish troops um, and Turkish weapons, and also um, reportedly, um, and pretty, I think it's fairly well um, agreed upon now, also Syrian jihadists, and yes. also, in one case, uh, most likely Pakistani militants. Um, Pakistan once bragged that they sent militants and rolled it back the next day, oh, no, no, you misunderstood, and so we didn't send anybody. Um, so it's kind of one of those things. What, how big of a role did these outside factors play in, in the conflict? And Huge. what's the future? Well, they, they were certainly decisive, uh, Cliff. If, it, if this were a conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan, uh, certainly it would have been a horrific fight um, in any event. It would have been very, very uh, violent and uh, with great lethality on both sides. But it was precisely uh, Turkey, a major NATO ally, which is no, no, no ally at all, but with all the resources of a NATO ally, bringing its full weight uh, uh, into this conflict with F-16s, with Bayraktar drones, which contained U.S. parts, with with uh, officers and 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 uh, you know intelligence, Th that that tipped the scales. If it was if it was Armenia and Azerbaijan, that would be it would be one thing. But when it's Azerbaijan and Turkey with the backing of Pakistan against Armenia, a country of three million people, um, you know we're dealing here with in excess of hundred million people to the east and west of Armenia, an economy you know, at least 100 times as large as Armenia's with a military 100 times as large as Armenia's. It was highly asymmetrical. And, um, and, uh, and yeah, that, that I think was the decisive factor. And do you think that will play a factor going forward? I mean, in future conflicts, do you think these other actors are sort of dyed in the wool supporters of, of Azerbaijan at this point? I think so. And I, I, I think that we, we are seeing a a Turkey uh, Azerbaijan axis backed by Pakistan. And I want to, in this uh, right here, Cliff, um, recognize you and recognize the Middle East Forum. Nobody in this city rang the alarm bells, alerted the public policy community about the, the, the Turkey Pakistan axis more uh, effectively or eloquently than Middle East Forum. I think you guys were way ahead of the curve. I mean, I think you know our community and, and the, the Greek community and Kurdish community and, and the Hindu community see this now, but I really think you guys were very far out front. You guys had the, the vision to see this is a problem down the road. I think increasingly, I mean, obviously we're, we're strong partners in this in this effort, but I think increasingly this city is coming around to the idea that uh, the Islamabad Ankara Baku axis is, is a is a bad thing on so many levels. Um, so, and you can correct my understanding here, but um, even given the Russia's historic role in sort of causing this conflict, Russia now is more or less on the side of Armenia. Is that correct? I'm not so sure. I mean, how, would you, how, would you, how would you explain their relationship between Armenia and Russia then? I would just describe it as Russia has its interests in the region and it wanted to advance its interests and, and somehow or other, you know, uh, uh, manage this conflict in a way that, that led to the outcomes that they were happy with, such as uh, a new military base. And it, the, the fact of the matter is, that the Turks and the Russians have been giving away, giving away, cutting away, carving away Armenian land now for, for well over a century. And mm -hmm. so it, it's, you know, the very often 
because of the relative might and economic heft of, of Armenia to, uh, relative to its, its neighbors, the ex very often the, the territorial costs come at the expense of the Armenians. And if you look at a map of a demographic map, for example, of where Armenians were mm -hmm. um, 150 years ago, they were all over uh, Asia Minor, uh, into the Caucasus up to, uh, uh, toward the, the Black Sea. And today it's been reduced down to some very, very tiny fragment and then reduced even further uh, last fall. And, and the Turkish presence is just growing and growing. And um, it's, really, it's really a scary proposition. It is a continuation of the genocidal drive initiated in 1915 with the aim of just getting rid of the Armenians from that part of the world. That's, that's the solution. There's talk, and I think that some of um, our viewers today may be familiar with this idea, that if you surrender land, you will get peace. Or if you lose land, or if your if your uh, enemy gets land, then they will they will be satisfied and give you peace. I'll, I'll say this in response to that: that the Armenians once had a, a vast homeland, right? And Armenians lived across you know a huge area of that part of the world, and it's been taken away, and people have massacred and ethnically cleansed, and all of Western Armenia, right, is now part of Turkey, emptied of Armenians. The churches are either crumbling or being bulldozed, right? And we, we might ask ourselves, well, did that satisfy Turkey? Taking 90% of the Armenian homeland, did that make them happy? No, they're just as aggressive as ever. They, last year, they took 70% of Nagorno-Karabakh, right? And now they're coming for the Southern part of Armenia. So it's like, you know, you can toss as many of, of your friends to the alligator as you might like, it's not gonna make the alligator happy and the alligator is never gonna be satisfied. It's just gonna come back for more and more. The, the, this is a situation like US policymakers view this as, well, how can, these, how can these two sides reach a stable equilibrium, right? How can they make mutual concessions and reach a stable equilibrium in which they can live in peace? It's a nice idea, it's a nice Washington idea. It's, a, it's an idea that people who've never lived in that region and never dealt with its, its uh, realities would, would, would offer. So they say things like, we call on both sides to cut it out, right? The fact of the matter is the Armenians, we obviously want peace. Look at the map. Nobody wants peace more than the Armenians. Uh, I can say after 30 years uh, um, on the job here in DC, that that's not what the Turks want. The Turks want there to be no Armenia, maybe no Armenians even. And, and I think that's the difference in, if this was game theory, you might uh, posit the two different games, right? Armenians looking for some stable equilibrium that will allow them to survive the Turks and Azadis looking to get rid of the Armenians. And um, so that's why it's so incredibly frustrating when our State Department, which is, I, I believe, our oldest federal agency or, you know, the executive branch agency, and uh, they still say things like we call on both sides. I, I think, like, how would we have felt as Americans if after Pearl Harbor, somebody had told the Americans and Japanese to cut it out, you know? You, you have, uh, you played into a couple different things I wanted to ask you about. One was, um, you mentioned sort of a stable, you know, equilibrium. Um, and I, I obviously take it from your comments that you don't think that's been achieved. Um, and I, I don't think it is either. But my, my point I'm asking is, I mean, right now there are Russian peacekeeping forces as a result of the ceasefire at the end of um, 2020. Um, what does that mean for all practical purposes? What does that provide and what doesn't it? That's something that, so yeah. Well, the, those Russian peacekeepers are, the only thing between um, the 100,000 plus Armenians who live in Nagorno-Karabakh, the, the, the Russians are the only thing between them and being either killed or driven from their homes. And 
that's just the way it is. And now, because it has a five-year window, we've already you know expended a year of that. The question is like, what will the future hold? Uh, supposedly, it's uh, either side, the Armenian side or the Aussie side can ask the Russians to leave. We'll see if that's the reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, the, the, I mean, I would say this, the, the Russian peacekeepers, they can be understood in many, many different ways. Perhaps the most meaningful for the people there is that the only thing that prevents them from being killed are those Russian peacekeepers. And even with the Russian peacekeepers, a, a young man, a 22 year old about a week ago was fixing the pipes so that his, his village could receive water because Azerbaijan has cut off the water sources uh, uh, to Nagorno-Karabakh. He was fixing a pipe, Ozzy soldier walked up, executed him. The US State Department response, and uh, Cliff, I can't make this up, was we regret the violence that led to the death. Uh, I, I remember from my 10th grade English teacher, he would have given me a C minus for a sentence like that, right? It's a passive voice. You're not, the, the object is not clear, the, the subject is not clear. It's just like, you know, it rained. It's, it's, that's not how you describe a crime. You describe a crime by defining the perpetrator, defining the victim, defining the act, you know, using an actual verb. And, um, but that our State Department has yet to find the courage, they have to find the will. Maybe they've simply made a judgment that they don't want to challenge Azerbaijan's aggression. We saw that, by the way, for decades on Turkey, and, and that's changing, and that's a good thing. It's good for US policy that we can speak honestly to Turkey about F-35s or Cyprus or the Armenian genocide or whatever. Uh, that's a healthy thing, but we're not there yet with Azerbaijan, and that's, that's very frustrating. Uh, so I'll ask one more question, then we'll go to audience questions. But um, as you allude to, you know, um, while the big war um, you know, of 2020 is over, there are still these skirmishes, there is still violence, and this issue is nowhere close to resolved, even in the most you know, temporary um, sense. And um, obviously, as well, the largest you know, political organization of Armenians in America, you are working to change policy, and policy is being made in real time in Armenia, in Washington, D.C., in Moscow, all over the world, but particularly in D.C., since that's your angle. You know, what, are, what are the issues you are trying to change in Congress, in the administration, so on and so forth, um, American policy towards Armenia. Sure, I mean, literally as we speak today, uh, the Senate is wrestling with the National Defense Authorization Act. And there's several measures in that bill that we hope to see continue and get enacted into law. They were offered as amendments. One is to cut aid, military aid to Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan's run by a billionaire. His family is fabulously wealthy. They don't need, they don't deserve American tax dollars. So cutting military to Azerbaijan, it just emboldens that. It's material support, but more meaningfully, it's like a moral moral endorsement of what they're doing. So cutting the military aid is number one. Number two, getting humanitarian aid to Nagorno-Karabakh, number two. And then third, getting some uh, State Department and Pentagon reports on the war crimes and the use of Turkish drones and mercenaries and prohibited munitions. So one is cut aid to Azerbaijan, second is get aid to Nagorno-Karabakh, and third is accountability. Thank you. Um, we will go to um, um, to our, our audience questions. And just looking over these, um, here's a good one. Um, let's see, didn't Azerbaijan also receive military assistance from Israel? Asked David Fine. Another one asks, how do you view Israel's connection to and support for Azerbaijan from Mir Milland? Uh, I'm not sure if they received military assistance. Uh, I think they 
the Israel did sell weapons, considerable uh, store of weapons to Azerbaijan. So that's number one. How do I feel? I think Azerbaijan um, has benefited significantly from uh, the sale of, of energy or resources, oil and gas to, to Israel. And, and Azerbaijan has purchased a lot of Israeli hardware. So I think that that relationship is it's commercial and also geopolitical. I think that um, Israel may see in Azerbaijan an ally of sorts, not an overt ally, but an ally of sorts uh, against Iran. So, and that that's, I think the, the sort of the basic facts, which is Azerbaijan, uh, Israel aligned itself through military sales, um, energy purchases, and and some geopolitical orientation against the Armenians in this war. And that's, that's very unfortunate. Uh, I would say separate from that, that I think within Israel itself, and I think within among, among Jews around the world, uh, there's not any great enthusiasm about lining up with Azerbaijan. I don't think Azerbaijan reflects any of the traditions that have traditionally defined sort of the, the, either Israel as a, as a, as a, as a state or, or the Jewish people over, over thousands of years. I think that the, the natural alliance is actually is with Armenians based on, on shared values, shared experiences. We've both been through genocide. We both deal with um, denial of, of the genocides we have endured on so, and in, in terms of like being in, living in the same cities, in the same neighborhoods, in the same professions, the, the, the connections are really remarkable. So that um, what I find is that in my interaction with, with um, certainly Jewish Americans and even, even uh, advocates you know, who, are, who are fighting for Israel's security is that there's not a huge comfort level with lining up with Azerbaijan, uh, but you know, maybe the, the message from Israeli foreign ministry might be that this is something that we need to do. I don't think it's really sustainable over the long-term. I, I shared at a conference a couple of years ago um, with some Jewish American friends that uh, if, you, um, if, you're, if you're not happy with how the Erdogan thing worked out, just, just wait a little bit, it'll happen with Aliyev. The, 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 it'll, you'll, you'll see an alliance of convenience that over the short term may uh, deliver some, some benefits, but over the long term will come back um, and, and very likely backfire in, with Aliyev following the Erdogan path of being openly hostile to Israel and, and, and I believe anti-Semitic as well. Uh, understood. Um, another question, um, it, one of the things I hear, I guess I should say, from um, people around town that may be taking more um, Azeri-friendly point of view would be that from the U.S. point of view, Azerbaijan has problems with Iran, and therefore, you know, they could be helpful in trying to hamper Iran's ambitions. And so how do you view the Azerbaijani-Iran um, relationship and the role they play in, in all of this? Um, yeah. Actually, it's, it's actually interesting that very often, um, Azerbaijan, in my opinion, in this city doesn't have any, let's say, organic support. There's not a lot of people out there who just have come around to really admiring and respecting Azerbaijan's political culture or their, their, their territorial ambitions. Typically, they buy their influence in this town and or they rent it. They have a lot of money, huge amount of money. They spend it very, very liberally. So uh, I would say that uh, their talking points very often are like Russia, Iran, and Israel, right? Uh, the fact of the matter is that Azerbaijan trades with Russia and Iran every bit as much as Armenia. I think actually more than Armenia. It's a larger economy, but they have like really robust, uh, robust trade relations. Uh, but the, the, I think they're trying to make a derivative point against the Armenians saying, well, you shouldn't support the Armenians because they, you know, 
they have a relationship with the Russians, or they, they shouldn't talk to the Armenians because they have a relationship with the Iranians. Well, Azerbaijan does as well. I would also, we, we, we share back, not with these lobbyists so much as with the US uh, administration and, and the foreign policy establishment, that uh, if an effort had been made to, to restrain Turkey and Azerbaijan from their hyper anti-Armenian policies, such that they blockaded the east and west of Armenia entirely for 30, more than 30 years, right? Uh, Armenia would not be forced to look north and south alone if it had some options east and west. But those, those are not choices Armenia has made. Those are choices that the Turks and Aussies have made. So if Armenia uh, trades with its northern and southern neighbors, it's because it really has absolutely no other choice. It could close those borders and maybe make a couple of Aussie lobbyists happy, but it will be suicidal, absolutely and utterly suicidal. Mm -hmm. Are there other countries that could form in a closer economic bond with Azerbaijan, or excuse me, Armenia and not Azerbaijan, that would um, make um, those choices shall we say, less stark? Well, the problem is Armenia has uh, right now four borders, right? Georgia to the north, Turkey to the west, Azerbaijan to the east, and Iran to the south. Uh, so in terms of like contiguous borders, not really. Mm -hmm. um, and the, but there are many countries around the world that Armenia has good relations with. And Armenia has, you know, again, against the talking points of, of some of the, you know, Aliyev's guys in DC, uh, Armenia actually has a decent relationship with the US anchored in a, a large and vibrant active Armenian American community, very, very strong ties with Europe, uh, France, Germany, you know, uh, Spain, other, other countries, and also uh, strong relations with, with Russia and other regional partners. Our, our, uh, the dilemma has been, has been the Turks, who I, I, as I've said before, it's not like we don't get along. I, I say this without exaggeration. They want to kill us. They want to get rid of us. They make no secret of it. If it was me saying it, um, uh, you might say, well, Adam is just, you know, he's exaggerating. Read Erdogan's own words. Look at the maps they publish. Look at the maps they publish. The, I, the Erdogan, when he took over the Hagia Sophia, which is this huge Orthodox cathedral, which had become a museum and then a mosque, he had his top imam um, uh, open the, the prayer uh, of, that, of the new mosque, carrying a sword. And then he used the phrase, the Armenians are... I'm not quoting exactly, but it was along the lines of the Armenians are the remnants of the sword in Turkish. He said that that's a Turkish way of saying these are the guys we didn't get around to killing a century ago. We'll take care of them now. Yeah, absolutely yeah. no secret. And I think our, I think I think a lot of the folks on this call understand what it's like to be targeted for who we are and then have the rest of the world say, oh, it can't be that bad. It can't be that bad. You know what? Sometimes it is that bad. Sometimes it is not bad. I understand. Um, the is some of the blind eye that uh, the West turns on this um, issue are, are related to economic um, connections to Azerbaijan. That's from Roger in the audience. No, absolutely, absolutely. The uh, Azerbaijan has a uh, you know, large GDP, almost entirely derived from petroleum products. I think I checked. I believe number two is tomatoes. I think that their number two export is. Is um is like it's it's not that consequential. So yeah, that 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 that's a big thing. The Azerbaijan, for example, has leverage. Uh, where will Azerbaijan send its energy resources? To the north, to Russia. To the south, to the Persian Gulf through Iran. Uh, to the east, to China, or to the west and Europe. Um, you know, through through Turkey, Georgia, Turkey, and and Azerbaijan has leverage because it has that it has these options. 
And when um, US policy is to reduce Europe's reliance on, on, let's say, Russian energy, right? A source of energy like Azerbaijan becomes very attractive. So you see all sorts of deference. The same can be uh, parallel to the econ side is the geopolitics. So for, or the strategic. So for example, Azerbaijan was for many years um, a, a way station on the way to Afghanistan and, and you know, helped a lot of supply routes to Afghanistan for the United States were through, through Azerbaijan. So th there is leverage there. And I think that with Afghanistan, all the changes we're seeing, battleship with a less reliance on, on, on carbon energy, I think we'll also see, like, I think, I think they've hit their peak financially for a while, unless they can come up with some other way to you know, package their tomato products. I, I think uh, they're, they're a wealthy country and they'll be wealthy for a while, but not forever. Well, thank you very much, Harm. I think that is reaching about the end of our time, um, but uh, really appreciate uh, you discussing this issue with us, and uh, I will talk to you later. Thank you, folks, for joining us, and uh, join us next week for more uh, webinars, and we really appreciate your attendance. Thank you. Thank you, Cliff.